everyone, you are in the game. Our weekly podcast about sports, business, the business of sports, money and sports, and the intersection of all of those things. My name is Anand Punjabi, and I am coming to you from London, England. And this is Vladimir Bosanets. I'm in Seattle, Washington. So in today's show, we're going to take you on a journey through the Amazon, not the real Amazon, but with Amazon, perhaps, or at least attempt to break down the way Amazon looks at buying the sports rights and how that is changing the game in the future. Then we're going to take over to Liverpool, where I'm going to force Anand to talk about his arch enemy, Everton. They're building a new stadium. Anand, are you jealous they're going to have a new stadium? Well, let's just clarify a few things. First of all, Everton are the other team <laughs> in the city of Liverpool. Okay, okay. And to describe them as a rival to Liverpool is a little bit of a misnomer, I think. Uh, have you heard of Getafe CF, Vlad? <laughs> no, I haven't. Okay, well, there you go. So Getafe CF play in La Liga and they play in the city of Madrid. So it's a little bit like calling Getafe rivals to Real Madrid or maybe the Mets being a rival to the Yankees. There you go. So that's a comparison. Oh, that's, that's fine. A, that's a big one. I don't know about that one. Yeah. No, so good for Everton. And I'm happy they have a new stadium. Yeah, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about this big news that they just announced. And finally, we're going to take you over to the world of tennis where there's a fight brewing. And like everything else in sport, this one too is ripe for some innovation. And we're going to explore how that may change tennis going forward. So Anand, are you ready to get in the game? I'm ready, Vlad. Let's get in. Let's do it. Anand, big news this week. The NCAA tournament is nearing its you know, conclusion here shortly. That's right. But today, just today announced that uh, Roy Williams, who has coached the North Carolina Tar Heels, now for about uh, 15 years or so. He was with uh, yep. the Kansas Jayhawks for about 15 years prior to that. Right. Is retiring. Kind of big news here in the college sports world. Yeah, 15 years is a good run, I think, for uh, any job, coaching job in particular. Yeah. He's been with the two schools combined 33 years. Yeah. He was actually an assistant under the legendary Dean Smith. Yeah. He's won three titles with North Carolina. So, you know, this was his kind of home home school. And um, this is kind of big. And everybody's now speculating, you know, who is the next the next coach of the Tar Heels, a very storied and impressive program over the last 40, 40, 50 years. So do you think the jump man has a shot at that? I don't think the jump man's into coaching. He's a billionaire that owns a lot of different things. And I think that drives him yeah, more than maybe, you know, getting into and, you know, recruiting and traveling and all that kind of stuff. Sure, sure, I don't sure. Know. Yeah, I didn't yeah. think so. Yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah. think so. Hey, well, you know, Pat Ewing coaches Georgetown, so maybe Michael will stay away from yeah. coaching if yeah. uh, he wants to keep his legacy intact, that's, keep that's his reputation exactly right. intact. That's exactly right. I don't think it's gone that well no. for uh, our alma mater with Patrick Ewing, unfortunately. But anyway, so that's yeah. kind, of, um, kind of big news here. But Anand, we have a couple of, uh, three actually, three very interesting stories that kind of take us across the world in a different way. I'll let you kick us off with our Amazon Prime story here. Cool, thanks. So we spoke a couple of weeks ago now about Amazon taking over a good chunk of the new round of NFL broadcast rights, the 10-year round they got Thursday exclusively now. So we thought we'd dive a little bit deeper into what uh, Amazon has been up to globally 
with their foray into sports rights acquisitions. Yeah, they've been quite busy, yeah. What it means for Amazon, what it means for the leagues, and what it means for the fans. As we mentioned, uh, since 2017, Amazon started with uh, the NFL. They had a non-exclusive deal for the Thursday night games. Uh, Of course, this is now exclusive. As we just said, this will now be exclusive going forward, of course. They've typically started small in the markets that they've taken a look at. Now they have rights across multiple sports in, in different countries. The big one, the big ones, for example, are the Premier League in England. They don't have a huge package, but for this round, this season, they have 20 live matches. They've managed to pick up actually more than the original allocation because of COVID-19 and no fans in the stadiums. Every game is being broadcast across multiple networks. So the networks who had the rights have picked up more games. They've got the Champions League rights in some markets, Italy and Germany. They picked up Italy first and Germany afterwards, so they've got some good Champions League games. Yep. They've got 45 games in the, the Bundesliga, the German top soccer league. And they've got cricket. They've yep. got uh, New Ze- all of New Zealand cricket teams' matches when they play them in India. Now, this is quite a big one because the Indian cricket team is by far the most followed sort of national cricket team. Cricket is more or less the only sport in India, the, the main one by far. So so they, they've, been, right. they've been dipping their toe in various markets across multiple sports and it seems to be accelerating slowly you know they have other things in sports as you know Vlad they have their own channels in different markets I know in the US they've got uh, MLB TV if I'm not mistaken you can watch some out-of-market games they've got the Sounders, the Sounders here in that's Washington right. so if you right? live in Washington State you can watch yeah. the Sounders through Prime they've got the NBA League Pass they've got Juventus TV so they are clearly making a play into sports. And yes, as you reminded our audience not long ago, you know, football is the number one show on TV in the US. Yes. I think we can probably extrapolate that and say sports is the number one show on any country's TV. <laughs> in any country. Right. Especially during the pandemic, right? It sort of takes us away from kind of the daily... The daily grind. You know, routines. But it's interesting, all of those countries that, that you know, you listed on, on, I mean, this is where Amazon as a company is also growing quite significantly. So, you know, Italy, Germany. Interesting, you didn't mention France. I think in France, they've had some issues with the unions and that kind of stuff, if I'm not mistaken. So maybe they're not as interested in that market for now, Right. But, uh, you know, I think this is a play for them to try to sell more products. I mean, as you know, to be super blunt about it, you know, they're looking at the, you know, NPS scores and they're basically saying, you know, what is my customer worth to me? And can I increase that engagement, that net promoter score with my customer? And if I can increase that by X amount of points, I know that translates into X amount of revenue. Therefore, I should try to to do that, right? Your thoughts on that? I mean, I know I'm kind of, I don't mean to be sort of cynical here, but I think at the end of the day, this is a data company, right? And when you said they're going into things slowly, I think that's what they do. They go in, they look at the data, and they're like, let's now invest a billion dollars <laughs> like they did with the NFL. Yes, you're absolutely right. They are a data company. And I think we have to, at some point, stop looking at Amazon through the lens of the B2C market that they're involved in, or the e-commerce shop front that perhaps we still think they are exclusively. Yeah. 
they're not a store anymore. Or maybe they are really, but they're making us think they're not, right? Well, we know that AWS, for example, Amazon Web Services. That's right, yeah. You know, contributes a very significant proportion of their net income, overall net income. And most people, you know, wouldn't even necessarily know that Amazon is involved in cloud services, for example. So as we were talking earlier, you know, we cannot really describe Apple as a computer company anymore, right? And we haven't for many years. So I think we need to probably stop thinking about Amazon as as an e-commerce shop or shop front anymore. Why are they getting into sports? Well, as we just said, sports is, you know, the number one show to watch on TV. It's it's the probably the most consumed and most popular content. So if they can bring that type of content to the platform that they control through a membership scheme, which is Amazon Prime, by definition and by default, people who want access to that content because they cannot get it anywhere else have to sign up for that membership. When Amazon launched the Premier League on the Prime platform, on the first two days that they showed their games, it was no coincidence that that was their two biggest days of Prime membership sign-up. Signups, yeah. Shocker, right? <laughs> Very surprising, right? Well, I mean, good for them, I guess, right? Now, if you think about it, they brought people in to their system who previously were not interested in a Prime membership. So yeah. either they, they don't care about next day delivery and all these other benefits that you get as a Prime shopper, and they didn't care to watch the content that was available on Prime prior to sports or at least prior to the Premier League coming onto Prime. Right. Yeah. So if you didn't care about shopping on Amazon, now you're paying 79 pounds a year to watch the Premier League. That's right. And Amazon knows that Prime members on average spend more than double That's right. on yep. Amazon shopping than non-Prime. So this is clearly going to raise all kinds of revenues for Amazon, the membership revenues and the shopping through the platform. Yeah, I mean, you're effectively getting money up front, right? I mean, the viewers are loaning Amazon money by paying these membership fees essentially up yeah, front effectively. That's right. What's what's interesting about this also is this is a personal story, but I finally sort of what got me over the hump to subscribe for Amazon Prime was when um Top Gear moved from, you know, BBC to now it's called uh, you know, the Grand Tour, right? Yes. To, you know, Amazon Prime and you know, it was an emotional decision for me and I think in sports when you think about one aspect of our life that's like super emotional, it's going to be sports, right? And you're going to make a decision based on, man, I want to watch my team play, right? And if you're really gung-ho and you're really determined to see them play, you're going to pony up that you know, $89 or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Just to sort of do it. And then you're justified by saying, well, okay, I'm going to buy something anyway, so I may as well get free shipping, right? <laughs> In your head, you're kind of thinking already how this is worth the investment, right? <laughs> And that's what they want us to believe. That's what they want us to believe. They, they certainly want to feel as though they're bringing value to the table. And okay, I personally don't watch a lot of TV, but you know, Amazon Prime now is part of the conversation when people say, hey, did you catch this? Or you, know, you must watch this. Yeah. People now ask, well, A, is it on Netflix or is it on Prime? Right. Which one is it? Because it's more or less one or the two. People don't say, hey, is it on the BBC? You know, is it on CBS? Is it on NBC? You know, is it on ITV? Is it on Netflix or is it on Prime? So I think they are very much part of that content conversation. And I just want to bring up, I want to focus on a point that you just made. Quite rightly, you've said, if I want to 
I have an emotional connection to my team, yeah. right? Yeah. Which most sports fans do. Or they have an emotional connection to a player yeah. for the younger generation, which is another topic, but there is that connection. Now, what frustrated me a while back, and now I just accepted, which is exactly what these guys want <laughs> from us. They broke you. Is they broke you on us. <laughs> I now have to pay for three separate subscriptions in order to watch the team that I support play throughout the season. I have to pay Sky TV. Okay. And I have to pay BT Sport and I have to buy an Amazon Prime membership in order to watch my team play across the entire season because they're broadcast across three separate yeah. platforms. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think that that kind of doesn't bring competition to the marketplace as the leagues would like us to think. It makes the fans pay more than they would have otherwise. Very true. I think that's one of the drawbacks, maybe one of the few drawbacks, because if we think about the benefits, if we, let's talk about the benefits for the fans. Yep. I don't know if you've watched any sports on Amazon Prime, if you've watched the NFL. I haven't yet. Uh, I haven't yet, okay. I have to admit. So I know they are bringing a lot of innovation. Yep. Amazon is a tech company, yep. so from the fans' point of view, they've gone big on this X-ray feature that features on Thursday Night Football, You know, which brings a lot of real-time stats. As a fan, you can predict what plays are going to happen using your remote and your and your phone and that type of thing and all of that you know is amalgamated and shown on the screen you can interact with the presenters yep so obviously they overlay all kinds of cool graphics which you probably weren't able to do prior to this big data company's involvement so that's pretty cool for the fans. 100%. This kind of stuff is coming. I think it's going to transform the way that we view sports. There's going to be more data, more stuff kind of hitting you. You know, watching sports will be just one of the things that's happening on the screen at that time, right? And I think if we look at some of these, you know, esports, you know, games being played, you kind of have a sense of where that's going, right? I mean, they're kind of ahead of the, you know, game in terms of, of something like that. Benefits to the viewers we talked about, benefits to Amazon we talked about from an engagement of their audience, benefits to the leagues, Anand? Well, I remember we spoke about, we, we keep speaking about this, Amazon's involvement is this, you know, huge cash cow that's kind of waddled into the into the room. You know, Amazon is consistently in the top five corporations right. globally of their cash reserves position, right. right? So anywhere from 50 to $70 billion at any one time is sitting in their coffers. So they, more than any other player in the marketplace, right? Except maybe a Microsoft, Apple, and these guys might be looking as well. These big cash rich corporations yep. Yep. can come in and spend, you know, any amount of money to buy up sporting rights. But they are taking it step by step because they want to see what happens to their fan engagement, you know, how they react to the Prime membership, as we've just been discussing. But presumably, this means that the rights are going to get bid up. Yes. We saw this with the NFL. The more, the more players there are. Yeah, the more players there are. Right. And happy. this is the biggest player on the table. And they're just kind of for now. taking it step by step. For now. Right? For now. For now. So the benefit to the league has to be the larger rights packages. Yeah. So in theory, the teams are going to get more money. The players are going to get paid more. Yep. You know, we've seen this in multiple... Yeah time sport around the world. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole for too much because this can be a show all in and of itself. But one other thing that I'd love your perspective on, Anand, I mean, a lot of companies in Asia, maybe rest of the world have kind of followed in terms of what some of the US technology firms have done. Do you think an Alibaba might come in and start doing stuff like this? I mean, they're bigger than Amazon by order of magnitude. I don't know what, but bigger, right? 
are we going to see some Asian players enter this world and, you know, change sports forever? Well, we are seeing companies that we had not even heard about, you know, that long ago. Okay, yeah. We've got Days in DAZN, right? Yeah. They are another big, big digital-only OTT player in the sports broadcasting rights yep. market now. I can't really speak too much for Alibaba, and that's probably a difficult topic because, you know, China's kind of... Yes. Yes. Excommunicated Jack Ma from the world. Right. Because he said a few things about the Chinese leadership. And so I can't really speak about Jack Ma, but if I can't speak about Alibaba. But your point is a very valid one. I think anywhere a cash rich technology company is in play and in the market for increasing their customer base, increasing their product offering, sport is an easy play and a logical play. Vlad, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about what's happening in the northwest of England? <laughs> yeah, I think you should be telling us, Anand, what's happening northwest of England. But let me kick us off here, here at least. So, sure, Anand. Uh, so, tell us a little bit about Everton. How would you describe it? And be objective. Be objective. Don't you know? Take your Liverpool hat off and tell us, kind of middle of the road club in the Premier League. Is this is this correct? Are they? What are they known for? Well, Everton largest claim to fame is that they are the longest serving club to have maintained a, uh, how can I articulate this? They've been in the top flight, so the old first division uh-huh. and the Premier League as we know it today, the longest. Okay. They've had the longest stretch of remaining in the top flight. So by default, they've played the most number of games for example. Interesting. Okay. The last time they were in the lower league was, I don't know how many dozens of years ago. So that's certainly their biggest stat that they will point to, that they've been in the top flight the longest. More than Man U, more than Arsenal, more than Tottenham, more than Liverpool. So Interesting. 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 Yeah. Well, so as you know, Everton just recently announced that it's going to, that actually got an approval from the city council or or the regional council there. That they Liverpool City Council, correct. Yes. Yeah, that they are going to build a new stadium. So tell us about their existing stadium. You said it's a very old structure. It has like a funny name. They People refer to it as a, as a structure made out of wood, right? <laughs> well, I know the Everton supporters here will not be happy. They won't be asking me for my autograph anytime soon. <laughs> not be very happy with us. Hey, we upset Leeds the other week, so we may as well just go down the list and <laughs> get everybody. No, I want to be respectful. Uh, Goodison Park is their stadium, and it's a, you know, it's a historic stadium. It's a well-known stadium. Yep. Some of the structure still, you can if you look up from certain stands, you can see like wooden beams kind of hanging from the top, Got and it. some of the seats are made from wood. So, so Goodison Park is often referred to as Woodison Park. Got it. If I'm going <laughs> to be a little bit cheeky about but that's all going to change. They are going to have a new state-of-the-art, that is, world-class that is. facility yes. in the not-too-distant future. So why don't you tell us about the stadium? What have you learned? That's the plan. That's the plan. So they want to build a nearly 53,000-seat capacity stadium, roughly about 500 million pounds, which in U.S. dollars, it comes to about $690, $700 million. The uh, ownership of the club, a gentleman by the name of uh, Farad Moshiri, yeah. he's sort of the lead investor and owner of this entity called Blue Haven Holdings, which is, I think, owns something like 70% of the club, essentially. That's about right. Yeah. Yeah. He's a uh, sort of a steel magnet, I would describe him. If that's the right way to describe him, he's been an owner, like I said, now for maybe three years, four years, or maybe a little bit longer. 
But in the last sort of five to eight years, right, has been the owner of the club. As we've talked about this, Anand, he's probably looking at how do I increase the valuation of my investment here? And you and I know that, uh, you know, as business people, the number one way to increase the value of something is to increase the revenue. And we discussed, you know, just now this old stadium that probably has limited capacity in terms of how much revenue it can generate. And he's convinced, for better or worse, the, you know, Liverpool City Council to help him out with this. And this is part of where I'm kind of, let's sort of talk about this a little bit. So the city is not necessarily building it for him. They're not giving him a loan, but they're guaranteeing a uh, construction loan on this project. They're going to create a special purpose vehicle to you know guarantee this. I think in a way for Mr. Moshiri, this is a kind of a great win for him in a sense that if something happens, the city is on the hook, but he also gets their full commitment to support him. And he's promised about, you know, he's promised something like 1.3 billion pounds of local economic activity around the stadium, about 15,000 jobs. You know, we'll see whether that happens. But what are your thoughts about this, you know, stadium? It's right on the water also, rather converting an old dock. And it's sort of an interesting part of town that's not necessarily developed right now, but it could use some economic... Upgrades? Is that is that a fair way to describe that? Yes, that is spot on, Vlad. It's in the North Liverpool Docks area, again, right on the waterfront facing uh, the River Mersey. Yep. And you know, Liverpool is a small city. It's not a big city. You know, so it's a walkable city. I've, I've walked around the city many times, both for my work, for my business, and you know, as a fan of Liverpool, I like immersing myself, you know, in the culture of the city, learning about the city. You know, so yeah, yeah, it's almost my second home, I would say, in the UK, certainly. And stadium, I think the interesting thing here is again, it's taken a foreign owner to inject, you know, this sense of progress, optimism, renewed energy into an English sports team, okay, in this case, not American, but again, a wealthy foreigner to bring about a big change. And yes. if I can add on on injecting ROI as well into the investment, right? Yeah, well, absolutely. It's fair to say we know this. This is a slightly different topic, but you know, there aren't that many uh, British owners left owning Premier League teams. Right. You know, money is generated outside of the UK and there's a big interest in investing in Premier League teams or investing in in European soccer teams. We've discussed this on a previous show. That's right, yep. And how does a team progress? How does a team grow? How does a team in a in a relatively important league, and the Premier League is an important league, both in football, soccer, uh, and sports in general. So how do they how do they grow? The broadcast rights are typically shared. Right. They don't they don't have a lot of control over broadcast rights. So they have to go after non-broadcast revenues. That's typically merchandising and stadium revenues. Some of them can be hand in right. hand. Which could include tickets, naming rights, and things like that, right? So there's so many ways now a new 21st century modern stadium, whether it's Everton or any other team, can bring, you know, tremendous increased revenues to a club. Yep. I mean Let's examine a couple of them, you know, very briefly. Vlad, we talked about this. First of all, the capacity is is 25% bigger, right? Everton's current stadium is 42,000. This is going to go to 53,000, so it's more than 25% more. Now, the very important factor as far as in-stadium revenues go, as we talk about regularly, is hospitality. Yeah, that's right. Not the everyday Joe season ticket holder. Right. Now, Vlad, why don't you share with us, for example, from the U.S. perspective, the kinds of prices 
U.S. sports teams charge for the non-standard seat, you know, for the box seats, for the corporate seats, for the lounges. They're not cheap, right? They're not cheap. No, no, they're not. And I think a lot of it sort of also depends not just on the league, but it also depends sort of where in their kind of life cycle sure. the team is. So if they've just won a national championship, Big time. guess what? Those rates are going up by, by they're going to double them essentially for the following year. Yeah. But we know that, so the naming rights is going to be a big one. Goodison Park probably could not find a sponsor at this point to no one would be you know, interested own the field or owned or whatever right so brand new shining kind of object in you know the middle of Liverpool I'm sure they will they can probably find a corporate sponsor to yep. generate money for them right and in the UK Anand based on my research that is still an area of sort of relative underdevelopment so I think old uh, Tratford this is based on 2019 numbers is kind of the biggest. They're almost at 30 million euros in terms of the naming rights. And then it's like another maybe five underneath that. You've got an Emirates Stadium, an Etihad Stadium, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. They're all sort of in the sort of 19 to 25 kind of range. The value of the rights. And that's the first six. And then everything else drops precipitously, right? So then the next one is like at 6 million pounds, right? So it goes to show if you can get into that level of sort of like, you know, 20, 20 ish million pounds a year, yeah. that's a very nice, you know, guaranteed income on this property, right? In terms of, you know, deals, I mean, we've talked about this, but, you know, the Dallas Cowboys and they're sort of, you know, the high mark of this, but they generate something like $620 million a year from stadium revenue. I mean, that's, that's an incredible amount. Yeah, that is insane. That's what this stadium is going to cost them, right? Yeah. Now the you know Dallas Cowboys Stadium is going to be bigger, right? So it's not comparable, but what they're probably going to be able to charge is you know corporate boxes, which probably will go for you know fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars or pounds a game. Yep. Right. I don't know how many of those they're going to have, so that's going to be significant, right? They're probably going to create a mini mall inside this thing, so when you go in, you're going to be bombarded with you know restaurants and food options and buying all kinds of different different things and all that revenue is going to obviously you know help them so that i think is going to be a, a huge thing my one kind of thing here is that mr mushiri is essentially getting the city to guarantee that this gets built yeah <laughs> right which for him as a business person yeah. smart that's you know that i totally get it and i think that you know let's hope it works he's got not a whole lot of risk in this deal is the way is the way I look at well, it. It sounds like he's what, think about that. Well, I think he structured it very well, uh, right? First of all, it's smart that he's got someone else to guarantee the debt against the stadium build. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> However, I don't even think that he would have lost if he didn't have this outside guarantor. Everton is not a small team. Everton is a historic team. They have a very loyal, very passionate fan base within the city of Liverpool. Yeah. Okay. Liverpool's population, you know, is yep. the number of fans, Everton fans living in Liverpool, never mind the surrounding areas and fans who do come from other parts of the country, believe it or not, to support Everton. Yeah. Far outnumber the 42,000 seats available in the current stadium or the 52,000 seats available. <laughs> right. So there's going to be enormous demand. I don't think they're going to have trouble filling that stadium, certainly not for Premier League games, okay, on the weekends. Interesting. I don't think they'll have trouble filling that stadium at all. So... All these revenues that you've just been talking about, I think will come to fruition. I think 
Everton now have an opportunity to have 30, 40, 50, 100, 200 corporate boxes, right, that are sold on an annual basis to corporations who yep. want yep. to associate themselves with the Everton brand in this incredible new stadium, right? New facilities, yep. you know, high-end dining, fine wines, all that whole experience is going to be available to Everton to offer to a whole new market. And those tickets are not cheap. If if the regular Joe spends $50 on a match day ticket, right? That same seat, the same sized seat effectively sold as part of a corporate package can sell for six, seven, eight, nine X for that day. They can use that stadium as a corporate yeah, likely. hospitality venue on non-match That's days. That's exactly right. Right? It's effectively a conference center. They have all these huge rooms, they have conference rooms. You know, so they can earn revenue on non-match days. That's right. Stadiums, stadiums in the UK and around the world, obviously, are used for for concerts. They're used for non-sporting events. So all these revenues are going to accrue to Everton. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so coming back to this point about the loan uh, that you asked, yes, I think it's a very smart play. You know, he's de-risked the construction of this stadium. If the SP, if if he if he fails or the SPF fails, you know, he's not going to be left you know, picking yes. up the tab, but <laughs> right. I don't think it's going to fail personally. Yeah. And this is probably the number one thing that he can do to increase the valuation of his investment. And it'll probably increase it, you know, 10x. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Right. So, you know, it's great for the city of Liverpool. I'm anxious to see how it goes. The, you know, designs of it look gorgeous, beautiful. Uh, I'm sure we'll be following this uh, yep. more in the future. So it'll be fun. It so, will be fun. It yeah. will be fun. So Anand, I have another story here. This one is regarding tennis and, and the tennis world. So I did a little bit of research on um, how much money, how many players actually in the tennis world actually make money. And this stems from this you know, story recently where we're seeing more kind of dust being kicked up around the tennis players union. And I think it's a brewing storm that I think is going to hit the tennis world significantly. You know, when and how, I don't know, but I think it is. So here's just a couple of little anecdotes, and I would love to hear what you think about this also. But in the NBA, there are about 530 athletes, okay? NFL has roughly 1,700 athletes. Major League Baseball, about 1,200 and, you know, so forth. What I then did is I looked at, you know, tennis. So tennis, you know, you have these rankings, you know, the, you know 500 ranking or 1,000. I don't even know where the rankings, you know, stop essentially, but the interesting thing about that is when you start looking at the prize money and the endorsements, right? And essentially for the top players, like, and I'm talking like top five, top 10, the big money comes from the endorsements, right? So Djokovic, for instance, who is number one, makes about 32 million bucks a year in endorsements, another 12 in, you know, prize money. Federer is kind of a beast here. He, in 2019, these are numbers from 2019, he made about 6 million prize money. He was also injured, I think. Yeah. 100 million in endorsements, right? Yeah. Nadal is closer to, you know, Djokovic around 30 million and about, you know, 10, 12 in, you know, winnings, right? And, but that's kind of where it stops. When you look at both men and women, between kind of one and six, they're making about, you know, 30 plus million in endorsements. Right. Number seven makes three. So it drops really, really quickly, right? Do you know who that is by chance? Who that? Ashley Barty. Ashley Barty, based on based on this, you know, number from 2019, 2020. So yeah, so 
on the earnings money, on the earnings is where kind of numbers start to, you know, become more important, you know, the lower you are on the list, if you will, right? Yeah. On the women's side, Osaka is a top prize money earner at about $2 million, okay? Number 50 on the women's list makes 140000 okay? Number 100 makes about 100000 okay? Number 200 makes $26,000 a year. This is a year, right? Not so glamorous. On the men, it's actually not, yeah, men is kind of similar. So Djokovic also around two you know, million bucks, right? Number 50 gets to about 200,000, so a little bit more than women. Number 100 is around 100,000, which is very similar. At 200, they're making practically zero in the men's game. So this is an elite tour. And my position here, Anand, is it's elite because ATP makes it elite. They decide how far into this list people make money. Do you have any thoughts on this before we get into the you know union conversation about this? I don't know if I'm wrongly making what I think is a reasonable assumption that tennis, like any other business like most other global sports is market driven so the nfl rights deals are at the numbers they are because more people like to watch football than they like to watch hockey sure right sure so i'm making an assumption that the prize money that's on offer in the sport of tennis is largely driven by the number of people who wish to watch tennis, whether it's in the stadium or on TV. That's right. And that whole channel of, you know, number of watchers, therefore the number sure. of broadcasters interested sure. in picking it up and how much they're willing to pay. Yeah. Now, if that's not the case, and the ATP is somehow manipulating the amount of money circulating within the sport that's worth investigating. And what have you found out about this? I think that's kind of where I was going with this. And I don't know if, you know, manipulating is sort of a strong word. I mean, look, they're a private entity. They can do whatever they want with their, you know, revenue. The, some of the research that I was trying to do is that it shows that the ATP revenue is like very opaque. It's not very clear how much money they actually make. You and I were looking at some numbers, you know, somewhere between 10 and 150 million roughly, but that could be totally off. We don't know, right? The big difference between those leagues that I mentioned, I think the ATP for all intents and purposes is also a league. The big difference is that two things that are very different here is this is an individual sport, number one, right? So each athlete is sort of a, you know, you know, his or her own, you know, business proprietor, if you will. Correct. Right? Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Whereas if you're a member of the, you know, Boston Celtic, you're part of an organization, right? Yeah. So that's one distinction. The other distinction is that the ATP does not really have a a players union. They have something called a players council. Right. Which kind of acts like a players union. It's sort of a seat at the table, but it's it's administered for all intents and purposes by the ATP. So it's not in the same sense that the players union in the NFL and the NBA actually negotiates collective bargaining yeah. contracts with the league to share X amount of revenue. So we don't really know, maybe the tennis players know, but we don't really know how much of the overall revenue the ATP actually shares. Is it 10%? Is it 80%? 
or somewhere in between. I we 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 have no idea. The big thing which came out during the you know pandemic is that all the tournaments stopped. The players couldn't travel. They couldn't make money. And what happened is uh, the ATP administrators did not take a pay cut, right? So that was kind of a big deal that you and I discovered over the last year. And I think it's exacerbated this discussion. Maybe now is the time to start something so that, you know, the athletes in this league can actually survive being athletes. The numbers that you shared earlier are disheartening, aren't they? If, you know, there are... 400 ranked players on each side, 400 men, 400 women. Yeah. And your research said that on the men's side. That's two. No, it's 200 each. So it's it's 200 men and 200 women. So the number 200 makes close to zero in men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In terms of earnings. Okay. Well, we know there are 400 players on each side right. who right. are ranked because when we talked about this relief fund, yep. which we'll get to in a second, there were 800 players who could participate. So if there are 400 ranked men's players, 400 ranked women's players, more or less. And you're telling us that player number 200, so the the median player right. is earning nothing, right? You know, players 201 to 400, they might as well they might as well go and, <laughs> and, and sell shoes in the shoe store instead, sell tennis shoes maybe. It's, it's very sad. It's very sad. Yeah, no, it is. I think as an athlete, like if you want to be an athlete, don't be a tennis player, it sounds like, is, I guess. And that's terrible. I mean, that's terrible because when you think about, well, what does it tell you? This sport is so highly concentrated. That's right. In a very small number of the highest ranked players. That's right. And yeah. the others are just scratching it out. I mean, if you want to be a tennis player, you have to travel around the world. And it's not cheap to travel around the world. You have huge costs involved, right? Your travel and accommodation and your sustenance, your food and beverage. You know, if you're not ranking, if you're not winning tournaments, if you're not able to even be eligible to play in those tournaments that have some reasonable, serious prize money, how would you survive? I guess you survive on sponsors, you survive on crowdfunding, your start or your your expenses. We have actually talked about some crowdfunding platforms for individual athletes to try and pay their way through the tour. We've talked about yeah. how some funds are fronting athletes in in return for potential future earnings. These are models that they're probably exploring. That's right, yeah. And if you're saying that there's no players union that says there's no independent body out there to represent the players right right in certainly in the important things welfare so if these guys are hammering it out traveling around the world and are unable to scrape together a living and yet this is a big big sport tennis is a is you know yeah. it's global it's a global sport yeah well it's probably number one individual sport in the world right in terms of fan that's right fan base that's right you know on the men's side and the women's side we know the slams for example generate incredible revenues for the organizers that's right yeah so where is this money going why aren't enough players seeing the revenues so or the share of the revenues so the number one player in the world novak djokovic he was actually the president of the atp players council up until last year he resigned because he actually is helping form this players union, the, the right. PTPA at the yes. US Open last year. If you recall, they actually made their official announcement. The ATP is fighting it. They're now saying anybody who's involved with the PTPA cannot be on the ATP Players Council. 
you know, there was some shouting happening at one of the tournaments most recently between some um, some umpires and some players during. Yes, I remember this during the matches. I think in Miami, if I'm not mistaken, this just happened. There's a lot of frustration here, and I think it's going to you know spoil over. What is interesting to me is that you know Djokovic has you know stepped up. Interestingly, Federer and you know Nadal, and I'll be a little bit of a cynic here. And obviously, you know Djokovic is from my home country, so I'll be double cynic here. <laughs> and, and you know, but Federer and you know Nadal have come out and kind of given this sort of soft ball, like you know, hey, let's all you know work together. We need to be in the same kind of room and solve these things for the betterment of everyone. That's not necessarily showing leadership. And part of what sort of frustrated me about this is that it, it kind of, you know, well, this is the system that made them rich. And the cynic in me thinks, yeah, why would they want to change that? And also, quite honestly, you know, I think what you've pointed out, Anand, is it's really difficult to break into that top 10, you know, world. I mean, you need to be an independently wealthy person just to be able to sort of you know, go to these places, you know, uh, literally across the world to earn points in order to get to be a top 15, top 20, top 10 player. And I think part of the reason that Nadal and Djokovic and Federer have been at the top for so long is that no one can afford to displace them. It's certainly not easy to earn a living as a professional tennis player that much we've been able to establish in this short time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid, now I grew up around tennis. I was a big fan of tennis when I was a child and I worked at the local tennis tournament in Hong Kong yep. as a ball boy and then working in the locker room. And I have great memories of, you know, rubbing shoulders with all these incredible players from the eighties, you know, you yep. name a top yep. five player, I've been lucky enough to be in their presence. But I remember these journeymen, you know, I hate to use the word, but no name players who were trying to scratch out a living. There was guys who had holes in their tennis shoes right? Yeah. And they were playing matches, you know, with substandard equipment. You could say that, you know, we think of professional athletes as being handed everything, right? I remember watching a video of Bjorn Borg in his hotel room the night before with literally 200 Donne tennis rackets. <laughs> right. And his team were like going through the, the tension right. of each racket to figure out what was going to work. So you've got this tiny, tiny proportion of players who are set for life. They have the endorsements. They've, they've made it big. And then you have this enormous majority who are unable to survive in a top elite sport. That's right. You are absolutely right to bring this up. I think you bring up a hugely important subject. Your fellow ex-Slavic cousin, Novak, <laughs> is right to say, hang on a minute, we need yeah. more representation. The players especially the, the the lower ranked players, you know. That's right. Something's got to work for them. That's right. Otherwise, why have a tour? That's exactly right. And we'll keep our eye on this. I think this battle is not over. I think it's just starting. It's just starting. If they've just formed this organization. It comes about. So. Yeah. Yeah. Good for Novak and good for uh, Papasil. Let's hope more more players join them. Yep, yep. Well, Vlad, I think we've had a pretty darn good show today. I know I've enjoyed it. Tell the folks what they need to do to keep in touch with us. Well, thank you for listening. Please follow our show in any app where you get your podcasts. Tell your friends and your family about us. And if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us. Our contact information is in the show notes. Anand, good game. Excellent game, Vlad. It's good to be in the game. See you next week. Cheers. Cheers.